Well, Jesus is the King of Kings. And now it's our opportunity to turn our attention to his word. Today, we're gonna look at how Jesus is our hope. And we're gonna do it in kind of a strange way. We're actually gonna hear one sermon, but from three different preachers. So Josh Watt, who's our next-gen pastor, is gonna talk about how Jesus is the hope for the next generation. Seth Trout, who leads our adult ministry team, he's gonna talk about how Jesus is the hope for doubters. And then I'm gonna talk to you about how Jesus is the hope that suffering cannot take away. Jesus is our hope. And that's what we're gonna look at today. So we're gonna open God's word to the book of John. John chapter 20, we're gonna read verses 24 to 31. And this is a remarkable story of an encounter that Jesus had with maybe his most honest disciple after he rose from the dead. Here's what it says. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is God's word, and Jesus is our hope. Jesus is the hope for the next generation. Junior high students, high school students, college students, all my former students, I want to show you this morning, once again, that Jesus is the hope of the world. And I want to do it by asking two questions. The first is a question we all ask, and the second is a question that some of us get around to actually spending the time to answer. Here is the first question. Who am I? Who am I? It's a simple question. Who am I? Now, especially when you're young you are always asking this question. You may not know you're asking it, but that's just how you live your life. You're asking the question, who am I? It's a good question to ask. Here's the problem though. How do you even answer that question? Here's what makes it really difficult. If we're honest with ourselves, we are complicated messes. Take Thomas, for example. We're looking at the story of Thomas this morning. Who is Thomas? If you were to ask the question, Thomas, who are you? How would he answer that? Well, based off what we have written down in scripture, there's a few answers you could come up to that question. The first is kind of the general Bible answer that a lot of us know if we grew up in church. It's Thomas is the doubter. Where do we get that? We see that in this passage here uh, in verse 22 or verse 25. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. They're saying, we've seen Jesus. But Thomas said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Who is Thomas? He's the doubting one. He's the guy remembered as the one with doubts. 
Here's the problem, though. If you look at other portions of Scripture, there's another picture that emerges. If you look at uh, John chapter 11, verse 16... Uh, They want to go back into town. The disciples are scared, though, because there's these mobs forming that want to go after Jesus, and they're scared, and they want to kind of stay back. And here's what it says about Thomas. Chapter 11, verse 16. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So who's Thomas? Maybe he's the courageous one, because in that moment, he is full of courage. Here's most likely the story of Thomas. He is kind of a pretty forgettable guy. Most of the New Testament doesn't say a whole lot about him. In fact, it's, it says he's called the twin, and yet they never mention the name of the twin. So that's telling. And then the Gospel of John is the only gospel out of the four that actually spends time to zero in and look at this person. So who is Thomas? Is he the doubting one? Is he the courageous one? Or is he this kind of forgettable guy. Who is Thomas? Who am I? It's a hard question to answer because no matter where you look at your life, you could have a different answer to that question. Same with Thomas. And here's the other problem with that question. It puts a lot of pressure on you to come up with an answer to this grand question of who am I? So I want to ask a better question and find an answer in this text. Here's the better question to be asking. The first question is good. You need to ask it. But there's a better question that a lot of us don't get around to answering. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Now, have you ever had just a great I told you so moment? Of course you have. We all have. And they're amazing. And we all use those moments the exact same way. We stand up tall. We boast. We get loud. We are proud that we can say I told you So, and in this story of Jesus and Thomas, what we see is Jesus with the greatest opportunity for an I told you so moment ever. He has spent three years with these disciples. He has spent almost every moment with these guys telling them the same thing. I'm going somewhere. I am going to a cross. They are going to kill me. I'm going to be in the grave for three days, but I will come out of that grave. I will arise victorious. This is who I am. And then he counters Thomas, doubting Thomas. And Jesus should have said, I told you so. And that's not what we see. That's not at all. That's not even close to what we see. What do we see? We see Jesus inviting the weakness of Thomas to touch the wounds of the Savior. The wounds and the weakness, they come close and they touch. The doubting finger gets to touch the wounds of the resurrected king. And young people, I just want to tell you, this is the only place you find real hope. The first question is good. The second question is better. And it's better because you get to bring your weakness to the wounded Savior. This is where we find real hope. You find real hope when you bring your weakness to Jesus. Not when you bring all your strength and all your answers and all your I've got life figured out moments to Jesus. It's when you bring your guilt, your shame, your insecurity, your brokenness, your doubt, your confusion, all of that. And you bring it to Jesus. And how will he respond? He will respond just like he responded to Thomas. He will let your weakness come close and touch the wounded Savior. Now, who is Jesus? Here's what's just so beautiful about this passage. 
is Jesus could have answered that question. Once again, he had been telling his disciples forever. And yet in this story, we get to see how Jesus responds. He actually lets Thomas do the talking. Jesus does not speak over him or speak for him for a lot, like a lot of adults in your life probably do. But Jesus is quiet and he invites Thomas in and he lets Thomas answer the question. And how does Thomas answer it? Thomas answered in verse 28, My Lord and my God. Who is Jesus? He is my Lord. He is my God. He's the wounded king. He's the crucified savior. And he lets our weakness come in and touch the king of the world. That's good news. And here's even better news. Jesus is kind. And he knows that not all of us, especially us in this moment, get the opportunity Thomas gets where we actually get to physically touch him and see him with our own eyes. So Jesus actually ends this with his own words to invite us all into this moment, to say, this is open for all of you. This is how Jesus ends this interaction. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. There is hope for all of us, even those who have not seen with our eyes the physical Jesus. He is the wounded king. He is the crucified savior. And he invites us in to answer the question, who is Jesus? Have you ever had someone tell you something that seemed ridiculous? These last couple of weeks, I've had a number of those things happen where people will call and say, I have it on good authority. We're going to martial law tomorrow. Or they've called and said, I've had on good authority that this coronavirus is actually a weaponized form of uh, disruption that's trying to undermine the government. And as they're telling you these things, you kind of go, get out your smartphone, Google search it just to make sure. But there's a sense in which you're going, I believe that you believe that. And that makes me more concerned about what's going on between your ears than what's going on with the world. Because these conspiracy theories, I even remember the first time I met someone who told me they actually thought the world was flat. And I just thought, interesting. This is telling me a lot about you, not a lot about the world. And this is similar to what happens here in this text when the disciples come to Thomas and they say, we have seen the risen Lord. See, a lot of the times we can think that, uh, you know, well, 2,000 years ago, people, uh, well, they, were, they just believed in rate crazy stuff all the time. They just, hearing about resurrection wouldn't have been that crazy to them because now that we're modern and sophisticated and know stuff, we know that those types of things don't happen. But that's actually not the case, that resurrection was crazy in the first century, just as crazy as it seems right now. Let's look at this text together. This is John 20, 21. It says, now Thomas one of the 12 called the twin was not with them when Jesus had come. Just in the text previously, we see that Jesus appears to 10 of the disciples, but Thomas wasn't there. So think of me, where was Thomas? Last time we heard about Thomas, he was zealous for following Jesus. Jesus was gonna go to town and maybe die. And Thomas said, let's go with them that we might also die. But now all of a sudden Thomas is sulking. He's away from the group. Maybe he's feeling stupid, questioning himself. Why did I waste my last three years following this guy? See, see, Thomas had what we think was probably a very good life. He had a job, he had a family. Uh, he, he was generally well-connected. He wasn't you know, just saved out of being destitute, but he left that to come and follow this teacher who ended up getting killed. So now here he is away from the group. While the, the, the other 10 were gathering together, Thomas is somewhere else. Jesus appears to those 10 and those 10 see Jesus and they go and tell Thomas, we have seen the risen Lord 
and he doesn't buy it. He says, I believe that you believe that, and that tells me more about you than it tells me about the world, because you people are crazy. And he says, you know what? Unless I see his hands in the mark of his nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails, I will never believe. I'll never believe. This is what's interesting about Thomas is he kind of vocalizes and says what most of us have been thinking. He vocalizes and says what even the disciples were thinking. I want to touch that wound and believe for myself because you can't always believe what you see. You can't always believe what you hear. But yet Thomas, he's the one who wants to feel it and touch it. I want to know for myself. I want evidence. And what does Jesus do? This is what's crazy to me. After Thomas expresses his doubt and his concern, both about the other disciples and the way they make their decisions, but also about whether Jesus is still dead or he's risen, it says in verse 26 that eight days later, the disciples are inside again. So a whole week goes by. One of the things we learn in this text is that when Jesus is working with doubters, he's not in a hurry. It's not like, boom, in an instant, Jesus reappears and says, here you go. But he gives us time to breathe, that there's not a rush. But at the same time, Jesus shows up. It says, eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Thomas is with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, peace with you. And then he turns to Thomas. Just imagine this moment. Jesus has already appeared to the other disciples, but Jesus appears and he turns to Thomas. Eight days after Thomas had in private said, unless I put my finger in his side, I won't believe. And Jesus says, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. What gentleness that Jesus knows the conversation that happened without him being physically present eight days ago and he shows up and he addresses Thomas's doubts and concerns with gentleness and care and personalized attention right to his face. Now try and think about what Thomas would be thinking and feeling in this moment. You weren't there when I said that. How do you know that I said that? Where have you come from? How did you see? And, and one of my favorite paintings actually captures this moment. It's by a guy named Caravaggio. And it's this picture of Jesus being very gentle, guiding Thomas's hand into his side. And one of the things that happens in that painting is Peter and John, other disciples, are looking in, almost saying like, we were scared to ask to touch the wound, but Thomas is the courageous one who is saying the things that everybody else was thinking. See, the first time that Jesus appeared to the disciples, he shows them his wounds, but the disciples just see and believe. But yet Thomas wants to touch. And even his, his sense of wanting to touch increases the, the, the severity of his belief. And what happens is, is Thomas sees, the other disciples see Thomas reach out his hand and touch. And Thomas answers and says, my Lord and my God. This is actually the first absolutely explicit confession of the deity of Jesus by one of his disciples in the Bible. And so what's crazy is that Thomas, the location of the greatest degree of doubt, ends up being the person who has the greatest degree of theological accuracy, that his doubts lead to a deeper and more real understanding of who Jesus was, even before some of the other disciples say out loud what is going on. And so God uses our doubts. God uses our questions, not just for our sake, but for the sake of others. 
that we see in this text even just the gentleness of Jesus to those who doubt. We see in, in this text the way that doubt actually develops a greater theological richness, a better picture of Jesus than previously existed. And then also that we now get to be benefited by experiencing and seeing the way that Jesus treats Thomas's doubts. See, previously Thomas was zealous and maybe he was slow to believe just because he felt hurt. Last time I trusted in that guy, he died, he left, he's gone. So maybe he's slow to extend that trust again. Maybe those of you who are skeptics, you're doubters. Maybe some of the reason you doubt is because you were zealous previously. When you were a kid, you were convinced. When something happened, something went wrong, pain struck, and now you're slow to trust again. You're slow to express belief. That's not what's going on Thomas here. Maybe, maybe you're just more of a, not necessarily an emotional skeptic, but an intellectual skeptic. You're going, resurrections do not happen. That's just not a thing. Well, the question is this, is suppose they did, how would you know? Thomas has this worldview. All these first century Christians, or these first century Jews had a worldview that people do not rise from the dead, but they changed their mind when they witnessed a resurrection. What's gonna happen in your life that you may go from having a worldview that's exclusive, that does not make room for miracles and resurrections to a worldview that's now inclusive, that includes resurrections and miracles? Because one of the things that helps me in my own faith is this reality that Thomas went from the strict doubter to eventually being murdered for his faith when he was in his 70s, testifying to the resurrection of Jesus. I know what I've seen, I know what I've touched, I know what I've heard, and he's telling people about it unashamedly. The skeptic becomes an evangelist. The skeptic becomes a missionary and he lays down his life telling people about what he's seen and heard and touched with his own hands. What would it take you to be convinced? Because what happens happening here is a lot of times we think that doubt is something for those who believe. But in order to become a believer, you have to doubt your doubts. What if a worldview that excludes resurrection is too narrow? What if a worldview that doesn't include the fact that God works in history is too narrow? What if a worldview that says all that exists is all that I can see and touch is too narrow? What if there's more than meets the eye? How would you know? How would you learn? Don't leave your doubts unaddressed. Doubt your doubts. Thomas was willing to doubt his doubts when, confront, when confronted with new evidence. And that's the intellectually honest way to go. And so we wanna be a people who encourage all persons everywhere to repent and believe because Christ is risen. And for those of us who don't get to touch with our hands, we get to hear with our ears and pray that the Lord will help us see with our hearts instead of just with our eyes. And so those of you who are doubters, who are skeptics, look at how gentle Jesus is with you. Look at how he's not in a rush with you. But at the same time, be willing to doubt your doubts and move towards him as he moves towards you because he loves you and he cares for you and there's more going on than the daily grind of what meets the eye. Jesus is the hope that suffering cannot destroy. I was out on a walk the other day with our family and uh, we have our little guy, Hank, he's three, and he's kind of learning to use a Strider bike. And so uh, we go on a walk and he is on his Strider bike and he likes to go out in front of us. He says, hey, can I be the leader? Can I be the leader? And so the other day he, he wanted to be the leader. And uh, he was, uh, as he was trying to get to the front so that he could lead us, um, he wasn't looking where he was going and he was bumping into us. And we said, Hank, Hank, you, you got to look where you're going. And he said, leaders don't look. And then 
uh, we were telling him, hey, Hank, be careful. You, you, we can't cross the street yet because there might be cars. Hank, you got to listen. And he goes, leaders don't listen. And I realized that I have a long way to go to teach my son about what it is to be a leader because to think that leaders don't look and to think that leaders don't listen is 100% wrong. Leaders look and leaders listen. And as I've looked and as I've listened at what's going on in our world and, and what's going on even in our church family, what I realize is that a lot of us are afraid, a lot of us are uncertain, a lot of us are anxious, a lot of us are concerned, and for very good reasons. There's a lot that's concerning. There's a lot that's fearful. There's a lot that really probably should make us anxious. And here's how different people respond. Some people respond with kind of a blind pessimism that says, ah, oh, see, I just knew everything in the world was wrong. Everything was broken. This is probably the beginning of the end and it's all just falling apart. That's a kind of blind pessimism. Other people respond with blind optimism. Oh, this will be fine. Oh, this is no problem. Oh, there's that cloud. Let me just put a silver lining on it really fast. And, and what I wanna tell you today is that Christianity is not blind pessimism and it's not blind optimism. It's actually something much better. It's real hope. It's hope. It's hope that stares in the face of real pain and real suffering and real trauma and says, yes, that's real. Yes, that's valid. But that's not the end of the story because the crucified Savior is also the risen Savior. Life really is hard. Things really are fearful. But Jesus is the hope that suffering can't destroy. Jesus is the hope the next generation needs. Jesus is the hope for doubters. And Jesus is the hope that suffering can't take away. See, every other thing that we would hope in eventually is gonna go away. It's eventually gonna be destroyed. It's eventually gonna be threatened. I was listening to a mentor talk about the moment when he went into the doctor's office and the doctor said, hey, we need to do some things because I, I think you might have prostate cancer. Sure enough, they ran the tests and he did. And in a moment, he realized everything had changed. And what was striking was if, if you had asked him on that day, how's your health? He would have said, fine. But what he realized after this was that actually, when you ask, how's your health? The best he could say was, I feel fine. Because in a moment, things can change. So, so I don't know where your hope is right now. I don't know if your hope is in, is in money. Well, that can change. I don't know if your hope is in your career. That can change. I don't know if your hope is in, is in family or friends. That feels like a better hope than money and career. But, but even, even death and suffering and sickness can take them away. See, the reality is anything else that you put your hope in, but Jesus, anything else, Suffering can take it away. But the hope of Jesus is that even when we suffer, we experience closeness to him. And even if we die, and we all will, then we'll get to experience the fullness of the hope we have in him. Josh and Seth have done a great job unpacking this story of Jesus' encounter with Thomas and with the other disciples. I wanna focus in on the, the kind of summary part that comes right after that story. Here's what it says in John 20, beginning in verse 30. It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, 
But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John, who was one of these disciples who was there watching that encounter with Thomas happen, right? This is an eyewitness account. John's writing and he's going, listen, there's so many things I could have told you about. There's so many other things I could include it, but, but, but I included this because I want you to believe in Jesus. And not just because I want to prove to you that he's right or prove to you that he's some you know, religious figure, but here's why. It said at the end of that verse that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, life is this major theme all throughout John's gospel. It comes up over and over and over. At the very beginning, when he's introducing Jesus, he says, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. John 3.16, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have eternal life. John 6.47 Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. John 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus, after raising his friend Lazarus from the dead, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And in John 17, three, as Jesus is praying to his father, he says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Listen, friends, suffering and death are coming. They're coming. For some, they're coming soon. I hope not. I'm not rooting for that. For others, suffering and death is going to come much down the line. For some of you, you're in the middle of it right now. Some of you have just recently lost loved ones, maybe from COVID, maybe from other things, and you're grieving and you're hurting and you're suffering and, and, and you're wondering, when will this happen to me? And I don't know when it'll be happen to you. And like I said, I'm not rooting for it to happen to you, but it's going to happen to you. You will suffer and you will die. And while we hope it's not soon, we know it's inevitable. And so the offer of Jesus, because he rose from the dead, is that no matter when we suffer, now or in the future, we can have the hope of eternal life. We can have life now with Christ. We can have life forever with Christ. And we have that hope because Jesus rose from the dead. He died for our sins, he was buried, and then he rose, conquering sin, conquering death. And we have the promise that he will return again one day and make all things new and wipe away every tear from our eyes. We have a hope in Jesus that suffering cannot destroy. Here's the good news. If you put your trust in Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, you are always moving closer to your hope. You're getting closer to it. If you die tomorrow, you'll be with Christ. And if you don't, Christ will be with you. That's the hope that suffering cannot destroy. We want to help you put your faith in 
Christ. We want to help you navigate the doubts and the questions that you have. And so one of the things we want to invite you to do today is that if, if you've put your faith in Christ, or if you have questions, or if you have doubts, or if you want to kind of follow this up with, with personal conversations, we would love to do that. Would you just email us at gateway at redemptionaz.com? One of our pastors will, will get that and will follow up with you soon. We would love to be able to be an encouragement to you so that you could find a hope that suffering cannot destroy. Whether you're young or old, whether you're fully convinced or really struggling with doubts, Jesus rose from the dead to offer you eternal life, to offer you hope, to change you and move you closer and closer to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. Thank you that it's a hope for young people, and older people. Thank you that it's a hope for those of us who grew up with faith and those of us who didn't. And God, we pray now that we would trust in Christ, that we would see him with faith, with the eyes of faith. Having not seen him physically, that we would see him in our hearts and and see him as a glorious treasure and put our hope in him, that we'd find in him a hope that suffering cannot destroy. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you that he is risen indeed. We pray in Christ's name, amen.